0: And so for this morning, um, I just wanted to spend a little bit of time on talking about uh, the Christian doctrine of the image of God, also known as the Imago Dei. And so uh, in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, um, there's a beautiful poem that describes God creating all that exists and then, towards the end of this account, in verse 26, the biblical author introduces humanity into this story. Genesis 1, "...then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground." And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every great green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Okay, so again, this is how the Bible introduces humanity into the story of God and his people. And it uses this language several times that God creates human beings in his image and in his likeness. there's lots of different ways that Christians throughout the years, as well as uh, our Jewish neighbors, have tried to figure out what this means. And there's a lot of different perspectives, and a lot of different angles, but let me just take a quick stab at helping us get on the same page with at least a significant part of what this might mean. I'll show you a picture here. Who's this? Emma, Moses, and Mila Kelly. You recognize them, right? Um, but really, when I say, who is that, that's, uh, that's not actually them. They're not actually here in this room this morning. So what is that? What are you looking at? A picture of them or a, an image, right? So we understand images are a huge part of our daily life, increasingly so. in in the information age. We are exposed to hundreds of thousands of images a day. We understand the purpose of an image. What is it? To represent the thing, right? So here's, uh, here's my stab at helping us understand what the image of God means. Next slide. The image of God means that all humans... Are created with the amazing ability and the awesome responsibility to make visible the invisible characteristics of our Creator and Redeemer. Now, there's other definitions of the Imago Dei out there. This happens to just be the best one. And so we'll work with it for this morning. Let's read it one more time. It means that all humans are created with the amazing ability and awesome responsibility to make visible the invisible characteristics of our creator and redeemer. And so throughout the Genesis account, Genesis 1, God creates right, the sky and the land and the stars and the sun and the moon and plants and animals, and he looks on each part of his creation and he pronounces, it is good, it is good, it is good. And so everything God creates is good, but only humanity is made in the image and likeness of God. There's this special categorization, this special language that's reserved to the human element of God's creation. And it's simply this, that we know that we have an invisible God who creates people in His image and likeness to make visible His invisible, invisible attributes and characteristics. And the genius of it is that God wants to be known and God wants to be loved. And the idea is that he prints his image on all humans so that when we look at each other, we get to know something of who God is and what God's like. That's the idea, that God fills his original creation with the potential to be full of the knowledge of his glory by making humans in his image and then giving them this responsibility and this ability to reproduce his image billions of times over. So first, it's an ability, meaning we get to bear God's image in the world, but it's also a responsibility to make visible what's invisible about God. So that when I look at you, simply because you're made in God's image, I get to see something of what he's like. And so I want to dive right in and wrestle with some of the implications if this is true. If this is true, and you may not be convinced that it is. That's okay, let's wrestle for a few minutes. What if this is true? What if every human being is made in the image and likeness of God? Let's just talk about how, how important that would be with a few examples. So the first implication would be that the way I see and treat myself would be radically impacted, if this is true. That if Pete Kelly bears the image and likeness of God, then what would that mean? That would mean that my life matters it would mean that your life matters. It means that no matter who you are or where you're from or what you've done, every single person is made in the image and likeness of God and therefore we have this rock solid, irreducible, glory, value, and significance to our lives. Several years ago I realized that probably the most unhealthy relationship in my life was my relationship with myself. I'm a, typically a pretty nice guy. Pretty kind, pretty accepting, pretty loving, most of the time. And several years ago, came to realize that's true with the way I treat pretty much everybody except for myself. Realize that there are things that I would think about myself and even say to myself under my breath oftentimes. That I wouldn't say that to anybody else. Right? And so of all the relationships with image bearers of God in the world, you start by going, I'm in a relationship with myself. I'm in a relationship with an image bearer whose life matters, who has incredible value and worth and meaning and significance, and on a regular basis, I'm insulting and speaking and thinking harmful things towards that person. But if the image of God is true, then there's something beautiful and sacred and significant about you just because you are. Henry Nouwen once said that if the image of God is true, Christians should be known for throwing the best birthday parties. He's like, yeah, you can throw a, a wedding reception or a graduation party or a retirement party, right? All these parties that celebrate something you've accomplished. But what does a birthday celebrate? That you exist. That you are. Christians should celebrate birthdays. Think about Jesus' teachings and the way that he tries to impart his faith and his vision of the kingdom to his followers. He doesn't ever specifically use the image of God, but if you pay attention, it's actually his teachings are rooted in it. Think about Matthew 6, where he goes, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? So he's going, God loves birds. He really likes them. He made them, and he likes birds. So he takes care of them, and they don't have to worry about anything. But then he says to his human audience, and are you not much more valuable than they? Oh, why? Why would humans be more valuable than birds? Because we're made in the image and likeness of God. Jesus assumes that in his teaching. So God loves animals, but he loves you even more. And so therefore, the good news is that we can rest in God's love. Some of you have battled significantly with feeling like your life doesn't matter. Feeling like your life has no purpose finding a hard having a hard time finding a reason to continue living why does your life matter first and foremost cuz god created you in his image and likeness he cares about you he loves you you are his treasured possession we'll start there if the image of god is true it changes the way we see and treat ourselves but then let's move outward a little bit. If I'm made in the image of God and you're made in the image of God, then that would change the way that we see and treat one another. That humans are the crowning glory of God's creation and so love for God and love for people are therefore inseparable, right? And so think about James three. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, And with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. So what's James doing? Is he saying, so that's the way it works and that's pretty cool, right? No, he's confronting his audience and saying, do you see the hypocrisy? Do you see the inconsistency that you as followers of Jesus would praise God with your mouth but at the same time You would curse humans who are made in God's image? He's going, you can't do that. You can't love God and hate people because people are the image of God. So James is calling out this community for being inconsistent. So the truth is that every single human is made in God's image and likeness. And this is especially significant for us to wrestle with when it comes to those humans who are hardest for us to love or easiest for us to ignore. Alan Hirsch writes, Seeing the image of God in people generates compassion. If we start with the presupposition that the person is created in the image of God rather than simply being a sinner, we will be compelled to look at their heart and attempt to call forth the image of God we know is there, no matter how hidden. And so, as the Antioch community, we are committed to following in the life and teachings of Jesus, to be come a compelling force for good and for justice in our city and around the world. And this idea is what anchors all of it. This is why human lives matter. And so in light of this idea, Jesus' words take on a whole other level of meaning, like in Matthew 25 where he goes, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. All of a sudden, that connection isn't so abstract or intangible for us. Why is what we do for others Jesus experiencing as done unto him? Because those others bear his image. The way we treat our neighbors in the city and around the world. Even those, especially those who live differently than us, look differently than us, believe differently than us. Jesus goes, what you do for them, you're doing to me. You can't praise God with the same mouth that you use to curse your neighbors. And so he's saying, these people, the ones that are hardest for you to love, whoever that may be for you, the ones who are easiest for you to ignore, are made in my image, designed after me, bear my likeness, And so when you love them, you're loving me. So let's talk for a moment about people who live in Central Oregon, and specifically in this place called Bend. And let's talk how this idea, if the image of God is true, how it would confront us as participants in this culture. If human beings are the only part of God's creation made in God's image, then that means that humans are more valuable than any other part of creation. Now it's all good, and God goes to great lengths here to say, care for the earth, steward the environment, cultivate life and health and growth in the non-human parts of creation, it's all good. But in the end, humanity is the crowning glory of God's creative work. And so what this means is that even the most haggard, strung out, meth addict in the gutter is more valuable to God than that entire range of mountains. Changes the way we process the world. Changes the way we read the news. When a little kid falls into a gorilla cage and they have to put down the gorilla, we're not happy about that. That's a tragedy that a beautiful animal was killed. But for Christians, it's a no brainer if you're trying to assess the value of human life versus non human life. We can mourn the loss of an animal but if a human life is at risk, made in the image and likeness of God, it clarifies some things for us. Okay, so let me keep messing with you, Bendites. Many of us, the reason we moved here is to enjoy the outdoors. We moved here for the mountains, the rivers, the lakes, the trails, all that kind of stuff. And for many of us, it's not just fun or recreation, but it's actually spiritual. Like, The place where we go to try to connect with God is the outdoors. I'm going to go hike up a mountain, float down the stream, bike a trail, and that's kind of like my place of experiencing or meeting with God. Now, that's great. God reveals himself to us in creation. It's beautiful, and it's glorious, and we live in a place. We don't have to feel guilty about it. We feel incredible gratitude that we're surrounded by the natural beauty that we are. But here's the thing. If humans are the one part of God's creation that are made in his image and likeness, then in reality, if we move away from people to try to find God in the non-human parts of creation, then we're missing what's being put right in front of us. the image of God is true, then the further we move away from people, then the further we move away from God. About a year ago, I got to go to Hong Kong for the Asia Justice Conference. Let me show you a picture of life in Hong Kong. It's just like a Tuesday afternoon walking down the street. It's the most densely populated place in the world. It's also the most vertical city in the world, meaning half the population lives above the 15th floor. It's an unbelievable scene. It makes Manhattan or L.A. or other huge cities seem incredibly small. And one day I was walking through a market that looked exactly like this. It's hot, it's humid. I'm about a foot taller, 100 pounds heavier than everybody else there. We're sweating. (laughs) I'm just trying to get back to the hotel. And I'm like, this is not good. This is not good. I mean, God creates the world and says it's good. Something went wrong here, because this is not good. And had kind of an epiphany in that moment of going, if this is the most human, densely populated place in the world, you know what that means? That means there's more image of God per square inch in Hong Kong than anywhere else on the planet means I'm surrounded by God's treasured creation and possession. I still don't want to move there, but it does change the way that you think (laughs) about cities, about people, things like this, right? And so if the image of God is true, then every human life matters. Every human is sacred, no matter if they're male or female or young or old, or rich, or poor, or black, or white, or gay, or straight, or Christian, or Muslim, or whatever else. And so this morning, we are fresh off the most deadly shooting in the history of our nation. 2 a.m. this morning in Orlando, a guy enters a dance club, opens fire, 50 are dead, Another 50 hospitalized. Absolutely tragic. And as Christians who affirm the image and likeness of God in all people everywhere, no matter their beliefs or background, the fact that this was a gay dance club and that 50 of our LGBTQ neighbors were executed last night. Breaks our hearts and we mourn and we lament because 50 people made in the image and likeness of God, their lives were devalued instead of being treated as the crowning glory of God's creation, they were murdered. And so, I hope we can truly mourn with our neighbors in the LGBTQ community today. What a tragic thing this is. And that this kind of thing happens all the time, right? And so if the image of God is true, then it changes the way we see ourselves, it changes the way we see each other and our neighbors in the world, and let's take it one (coughs) step further. Let's push the circle a little bit farther. Where did the idea of human rights come from? Genesis chapter 9, the second place that we're reminded of the image of God. God says, Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made mankind. What's God saying there? He's saying, Violence against humans is unacceptable in my world. And why? Why is God opposed to violence against humans? Just because it's mean? Because it's not going to work? No, because humans are made in his image and likeness. He didn't say don't harm others because it's illegal, but because they have inherent worth. It's the foundation of human rights. Where did Dr. King get his foundation for the Civil Rights Movement. He got it from the Bible. Listen to this short chunk from the American Dream speech in 1964. The concept of the Imago Dei is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. And this gives everyone a uniqueness, a worth, a dignity, and we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Listen to this. Every man from a treble white to a bass black are significant on God's keyboard precisely because everyone is made in the image of God. This was Dr. King's theological and philosophical foundation for the civil rights movement. The biblical doctrine of the Imago Day, So thankfully, Dr. King solved the racism problem and we don't really have to worry about that anymore, right? If the Imago Day is true, what does that mean for human life, even unborn human life? It means it matters. It means that all humans deserve to be protected, to be treated with dignity to have their lives preserved. And so, from the very beginning of Christianity, followers of Jesus have been opposed to abortion because of the Imago Dei. It's life sacred. If it's not, it doesn't matter. The unborn serves no value in a utilitarian view of society. But if even unborn humans bear the image of God, then their lives matter. And so do the lives of the women who are in horrible situations where it feels like abortion is their only option. Their lives matter. Their rights need to be protected. They need to be cherished and cared for and empowered as well. So what happens, and especially in the midst of a crazy circus of a, of a uh, presidential um, election is that something like the Imago Day comes in and starts to mess with us, starts to mess with some of our categories and would call us to be people who love the unborn and love the women who are carrying them as well. And it's almost like when Jesus imagines his community of disciples loving their neighbors as themselves, it's almost like he means all of them. So here's how the early church, we just finished Acts, here's how they lived out some of these tensions and aggressively sought to love, affirm, protect the image of God in all people everywhere. The first communities of Christ followers emerged within the Greco-Roman world. And they had a society that looked much like ours, where human rights were based on what you would call capacities, the utilitarian value. And so their culture was deeply shaped by guys like Aristotle, who believed that some races were born intellectually superior to others. And therefore, there were those that deserved to be enslaved and oppressed. And so in the Greco-Roman world, you had slavery, you had poverty, you had terrible abortion and infanticide, and especially among baby girls whose lives were not valued. You had sick and elderly who were often left in the street to die. And all along the way, this was standard and legal practice, but then the Church of Jesus shows up. And they believe in the doctrine of the Imago Dei, and it causes them to see and to treat people differently. So Christians were opposed to abortion and infanticide from the very beginning, but they weren't just single issue people. They also cared for the poor, they cared for the sick, They cared for the elderly. We even have accounts of early Christians voluntarily fasting, not as some sort of vague spiritual practice, but because if they deprived themselves of food, they would be able to feed those who wouldn't eat otherwise. Early Christians were champions for women's rights. When a woman became a widow in the early Greco-Roman world, she would lose her identity, lose her security, and be forced to marry someone else just to survive. The Christians came along and supported widows so they didn't have to remarry if they didn't want to. And when kids were abandoned or orphaned, Christians would take them and care for them as their own. Because when you believe in the image of God, the circle of protected life expands. And all people everywhere matter. And so, you see how incredibly important and crucial this doctrine is for us. Let me say one last thing. Let's go to Luke chapter 20, if you've got a Bible. In Luke chapter 20, Jesus' opponents are trying to trap him. They're trying to publicly expose him so that they'll have reason to arrest him and do away with him. We'll pick up the story in Luke 20, verse 20. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius, whose image and inscription are on. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Okay, so the scene is that uh, Jewish people are living under Roman oppression, under the empire of Caesar, And they're essentially going to Jesus, this Jewish rabbi, and saying, so do you pay taxes to an oppressive ruler? Should we give to Caesar what is Caesar's? Now, um, there's a lot of ways that people have wrestled with and interpreted Jesus' teachings here. Many pastors like to use this to talk about tithing. By the way, if that's what God speaks to you through this, then please do. But... How does Jesus determine what belongs to Caesar? Throw up the next picture. What does he say? Whose image is on it? (laughs) So, how do we determine what belongs to God? Who's stamped with the image of God? We are. And so here's what I think Jesus is saying. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give yourself to God. So Anthony Hokema, Christian philosopher, says, to be a human being in the truest sense, therefore, means to love God above all, to trust him and obey him, to pray to him and to thank him. Man is bound to God as a fish is bound to water. When a fish seeks to be free from the water, it loses both its freedom and its life. And when we seek to be free from God, we become slaves of sin. So what I would argue this morning is that if we, as the church of Jesus, take seriously the historic Christian doctrine of the Imago Dei, that that will in turn create the kind of people that the world needs most. It's not by turning away from Christian teaching or tradition, not by turning away from the Bible, not by turning away from God that we find freedom, but as he says, it's by giving ourselves to him. So all Christians, every, or all people everywhere, are made in the image and likeness of God, no matter what they believe. But we also know that all people have failed to bear that image in many different ways, right? But starting in Genesis 3, the image of God is fractured, or broken, or tarnished in us. And so we fail to live up to God's expectations for why he first created us, to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory, as image bearers who have chosen to bear our own image rather than his, that's sin. But thankfully God hasn't given up on humanity, has he? Instead, he enters into our world, he becomes one of us, and as a man named Jesus, he lives perfectly as an image bearer of God. Meaning that he lived among us as the one who perfectly bears God's image and perfectly affirmed and loved the image of God in everybody else. Which is to say, he loved God and he loved people. Colossians 1, Paul calls Jesus the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's the good news. That yes, all of us bear the image of God, and yes, all of us have failed to bear the image of God well. And so our lives are in need of restoration, in need of redemption. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus comes and lives among us as God's perfect image bearer, and he invites us to unite our lives to him. And the prayer and the hope that Paul and others have for Christians is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, the one human who perfectly bears the image of God. That's what we get to be part of today. That the Holy Spirit is actively at work conforming us as a community and as individuals to bear the image of Jesus in this broken world. And it's not just some nice vague theoretical theological idea we are convinced that as we give ourselves to God, as we trust in our union with Jesus, as we submit to the power and the, and the leading of the Holy Spirit, that not only will we find ourselves experiencing a more robust, meaningful, and life-giving human experience, but we will also be transformed into the kind of people Bend and the world needs the most. And so we're here this morning to give ourselves to God and to be sent out as those who give our lives away for the sake of this gospel. It's an incredible privilege, an incredible honor. I'll pray, and then our good friend, Annie Bethancourt from Portland, is here with us to share a song this morning. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you have done what we have failed to do that you have lived the life that we were supposed to live you have died the death we were supposed to die you have risen again and inaugurated a cosmic revolution to make all things new including us and we celebrate that that good news has reached our hearts this morning thank you for making us in your image and likeness of God in your image and likeness and thank you For entrusting us with this incredible ability and mission to bear your image and to call it forth in all people everywhere. We do mourn today with all those who lost loved ones in the shooting last night. Lord, have mercy. And we thank you that you are our joy and our presence, even in conflict and chaos. You are the hope of the world, Lord Jesus. We trust you. In Jesus' name we pray.